Welcome to the podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business based in London and podcasting and broadcasting globally through these podcasts and through EITV on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Thank you very much for coming on this odd day. It's odd weather-wise. It is, of course, a gloomy anniversary. Edelman have deep cleaned their building and so we're all here I think we're all feeling rather valiant I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence I'm delighted to welcome you to a really mixed bag of an event this event is doing two things hopefully seamlessly one is to celebrate the publication oh there's a open a very open window that's very deep cleaned I think that's where the swine flu that's came where in. the swine flu came in we're here for two technically unconnected but perhaps at the end of this evening they will be connected reasons one is the publication of this which you will all be given it's a report that we published tonight following our first ever thought symposium How's that for a punchline? Ta-da! On individuality in a mass age, with or without thunder and lightning, which we have put together with our partners Edelman, who are kindly hosting this evening, the media analysis firm Cision, the Cass Business School, the Financial Times, Jaguar Land Rover. And in order to kick off this publication, we're mixing this event with another event that some of you know we do regularly called our Thought for the Day, where we invite two prominent figures to give us what is on their minds. On my left, at this moment, politically speaking, on my left is Stephen Carter, Lord Carter, the Minister for Communications, Technology and Broadcasting, who is our window monitor. I don't know if anyone from Edelman can fix our window and put a key in it. Um, Stephen Carter is, of course, associated with the recent publication of another report, Digital Britain, and I think we all hope that his thought for the day is going to concentrate on that. He has an incredibly illustrious career in business and advertising, and speculation is rife about what he will do when he leaves government, but I think it's safe to assume he won't be sharing that with us in his thought for the day. But to start is William Eccleshare, who was at Port Merion at the Names Not Numbers inaugural symposium. He is currently the chairman and chief executive of BDDO Europe, the advertising giant. He is soon to become the president and international CEO of Clear Channel. He is steeped in business and media and advertising. And I think it's fair to say that his thought for the day is likely to be as thought-provoking now as it was in Port Merion. Then, thunder permitting, I'm going to invite some of you, all of whom are figures in your own right, to comment and discuss. And I should point out three technical things. One is, please turn off your mobile phones. Two, please be aware that this event is being filmed for broadcast on EITV on YouTube, and it will be podcast. And if for some reason any of you object to being filmed, please say so. And if you object to being broadcast, podcast, don't say a word. William, please speak to us. William Eccleshare. Yes, thank you. Right. Um, I always like to do standing room only, but today it was obviously arranged to be standing room only so that um, just a very few of you can sit down. So we'll try and um, keep it as brief as possible so that you don't have to stand for too long. Can I just ask before I start, how many people in the room were at the Port Merion Names Not Numbers? Right, okay. Well, what I'm going to do is, is kind of update a, a rant that I did in Port Merion um, and share with you kind of what's... What's, what's on my mind today uh, as an update of what I talked about then. At the um, Names Not Numbers seminar there, I, I thought I rather took my life in my hands and dared suggest, very gently, but dared to suggest that the media was not being entirely helpful in its reporting of the economic downturn. I also predicted at that point that the media would soon tire 
of reporting unremitting gloom and would, before too long, start citing green shoots. Well, that was back in February, and I have to say I've been proved unusually correct. Um, There was a wonderful article uh, in uh, Bloomberg. Uh, Matthew Benjamin wrote a great piece, uh, end of last month, in which he talks about the what he calls the massive overuse of the green shoots cliché and the lack of any substantive data to support it. He cites research saying that press articles using what he calls the locution, which I think is a wonderful phrase, the locution, uh, he cites uh, articles increasing from 420 in March to over 3,000 in May. And he quotes David Rosenberg, who is the former chief economist at Merrill Lynch, saying that the term is overused and overrated. It's more a comment on the human condition and the innate need for optimism than any accurate description of the economy. He goes on to offer brown manure, that's a lowercase b, uh, as a more appropriate phrase. So what I'd like to do is just take a moment to have another look or another think about the relationship between media reports of the economic crisis and the everyday reality for millions of Brits. Ben Hecht, the author of The Front Page, which is probably the best play ever written about journalism, he wrote, Trying to determine what is going on in the world by reading the newspapers is like trying to tell the time by watching the second hand of a clock. His point, that the media inevitably distorts time cycles and therefore has to be partly disconnected from the reality of many everyday lives, is even more apt today in a world of rolling news and multi-platform reporting. Just 10 days ago, we at BBDO researched 1,000 people in the UK and asked them how they feel about their economic circumstances compared to a year ago. And 66% of those we spoke to said they are as well or better off. The reality is that that number is probably closer to 90%. Because what we find is that when probed further in individual interviews, people will admit to being unaffected themselves by the downturn, but say that their mood is depressed by a toxic combination of the news and the current tone of social discourse. It's just not done right now to to admit to be doing okay. Only 8% of our survey say that they feel unlucky in terms of how they've been hit by the crisis so far. And remember, too that the fall in interest rates on credit card bills, the reduction in mortgage costs of VAT and on petrol prices leaves the average family around £5 a week better off now than they were a year ago. Now, this is not, of course, to say that the crisis doesn't exist in real homes across the country. Of course, it does. Unemployment has gone up by 1.8 percentage points in the last year. That's some 600,000 job losses. And for anyone who doesn't have a job and is suddenly living on benefit, things are indeed bleak. But at the other end of the scale, and it's here I suspect that most commentators have exposure or even first-hand experience, we know that people who have had their money in the equity markets have been badly hit. Anyone who has a private pension pot has winced as its value has shrunk. And those who have direct exposure to a weaker pound through foreign holiday homes or travel are also badly affected. The big question, though, is how many of those people there are and, as I suggested last time, whether the scale of the impact of the recession to date, presented by the press as the reality, is actually as great as is claimed. It's easy for us, for those of us in this room today who are extremely well-read on the macroeconomic picture, probably fortunate enough to have some kind of private pension provision with some exposure to investment markets, and a connection to -to day-to-day business realities to assume that the average family on a household income of around 25,000 sees things the way we do. But the truth is that they do not. They really do not. Most of those who still have jobs absorb the media stories with a slightly guilty detachment. The macro issues, national debt rising by trillions, for example, seem very remote, irrelevant, and even boring to many. One man in our research said he was delighted that the parliamentary expenses scandal had dominated the news so completely because it meant he didn't have to listen to doomsday economic news reports anymore. Ironically, he felt far more connection and interest with duck houses and moat cleaning than with the ramifications of subprime lending. 
Now, there's no doubt that media editors have recognised that there is some kind of fatigue with recession stories. Back in January, you'll remember, that Baroness Vadera was vilified for saying that she saw some green shoots. Six months later, the phrase is back in common usage without any apparent backlash. Next, we'll have reports of Alistair Darling whistling Lamont style in his bath. But one has to question what these headlines mean and whether they reflect any real change in economic circumstance or whether they're simply a shift in direction of the news agenda to coincide with better weather outside, it says here, but clearly that was written this morning. Uh, And what, if anything, they might suggest about the future. As I've said, there are huge tranches of British society still totally unaffected by the crisis. There are also many who will use words like anticlimax or non-event to describe the recession because of the media-generated fear of Armageddon that was so great last September. The point about the media influencing rather than merely reporting economic conditions was very well made recently by a 38-year veteran of the Bank of England. He said, Although economic forces cause recessions, their character and their turning points are driven by psychological and social factors, which econometrics is poor at picking up. That is why forecasting turning points in the business cycle is so hard. We know the economy will turn, but when? And after a while, consumers think, enough pain, and start to enjoy themselves again. Communication experts will be better at spotting that point than economists. Well, my view is that searching for shoots of any hue right now is entirely pointless, because we are, in fact, living through a false dawn. Come next year's election... Interest rates rising to over 3 million and cuts in public service... Sorry. <laughs> interest, rates, interest rate rises, tax increases hitting real earnings, unemployment rising to over 3 million and cuts in public service will ensure that we look back at this period as not exactly a golden age, certainly a time of relative well-being. And what will the media do then, I wonder? The attention span seems so brief and the need for a new narrative so urgent that I guess we'll move on from the spurious green shoots to an equally exaggerated theme of double dip or dead cat bounce. That'll probably see us through to the start of a Cameron government, and then after the briefest of brief honeymoons, we'll be back to disillusionment and depression. And if you don't believe me, look at how the US media are reporting Obama after just six months in office. Whichever view you subscribe to, you can be sure that this is going to be a long haul. And consumers who we talk to seem to recognise that and continue to behave schizophrenically. There's an overall sense of cutting back and reducing waste, combined with the occasional irrational treat. That's why we get stories of growing sales of camping gear or own-label fish fingers mixed with tales of boom time at Mulberry or Hermes, and why we still can't get a restaurant table on a Saturday night. (laughs) Ambiguity is the order of the day, and as things get clearer, it may feel worse. Those of us in the advertising industry have, as ever, been hard hit and early hit by the downturn. Our responsibility now is to do all we can to recognize and understand the consumer mood and tailor our messages to encourage a speedy return to some kind of normality. And anything any of you can do to help us is most welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So all is not what it seems was all what it seemed with the response to your report. Let's hear from Stephen Carter now. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that. I, I always have a slightly spooky sense of Groundhog Day when I, uh, when I uh, follow William because uh, I started my, what passes for my career uh, following William um, because um, <coughs> he uh, was one of the first people to offer me a job and, in fact, also introduced me to my wife. Um, uh, which has generally been a more successful uh, experience than my career, I have to tell you. Um, although I, 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 I do tease him. He maintains this is not true, but I've got the platform and the microphone. But I do tease him that when I eventually became managing director of the company that he had hired me, and I, I did that thing that you do uh, when you become uh, the boss, is I went straight to the HR department and uh, asked to see my own file. Uh, and I dug it out, and there in my graduate recruitment notes were the notes... <laughs> Uh, from my uh, three-day uh, boot camp interview. And there was a scribbled note from William Eccleshare, who was uh, one of the examiners at the time on mine, saying, not a team player, don't hire him. 
but fortunately, he was overruled by uh, wiser heads, and, uh, uh, and, and the rest is, uh, is, uh, is certainly my history, if not anyone else's. Um, predicting the future is a, is a jolly tricky thing. I, I was speaking at a, um, at a consumer electronic goods uh, event uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, I think, and, uh, and at the end of it, I got sandbagged by the uh, compare who said to me, we're going to ask every, every uh, participant this, but what is the electronic uh, device that is going to be critical to your life in 20 years' time? So I looked out at the eight or 900 people in the audience, and I could see some f- familiar faces. I could see Sony and Toshiba, and I thought, who am I going to offend here? So eventually I said, a pacemaker. Uh, uh, and, uh, and only yesterday I got an email from one of the manufacturers saying we think we can tool up the factory for your pacemaker but do you want it wireless enabled um, and uh, it was a little bit like that when we set off uh, uh, on the path for what has become the, uh, the Digital uh, Britain project which I will try and reverse into a little off the back of uh, William's comments because um, uh, given the, the, the title for what I'm supposed to be saying is a, a, thought, a thought for the day, and this is a, a, a connected, concerned, and smart audience. Uh, and I've had the benefit of reading the, uh, uh, the report of the Port Marion experience, which sadly I couldn't go to because I was somewhat preoccupied at the time. Um, I was asked to do this uh, particular project by the Prime Minister last summer because as we were sitting in Downing Street debating when the media would stop writing endless stories about uh, the depths of uh, recession. In fact, we, we, sort of, we used to uh, ask ourselves, you know, when, who would be the first to write the front-page headline, the recession is over? And I think the prize actually went to The Independent uh, about two weeks ago, had it as a front-page yep. uh, formal, uh, formal headline. But in, you'd be reassured as taxpayers and citizens, hopefully, to know that last summer we were doing the strategic planning work on uh, what should UK PLC do uh, in order to be able to address the longer-term economic challenges facing any uh, developed economy uh, when uh, the re, uh, more acute aspects of the recession uh, began to be less visible. Um, or put, in my slightly more colloquial terms, what do we want to be good at in this country in five or ten years' time? Um, and uh, I was asked, amongst, uh, along with some others, to go away and write some thought papers on that, and I indeed wrote one and made the mistake of writing one on the sector that I knew something about, at which point the Prime Minister did to me what uh, uh, you may find your, happen to you in various different lives, which was put the, well, if not you, then who question. Um, and uh, trust me, when you're faced with that question of do you want to step into uh, the public space, uh, put aside your private life uh, and uh, commit yourself to doing something for the public good, uh, it's a very interesting dilemma um, because uh, uh, there are an awful lot of other ramifications that go along with the... Uh, hysteria that passes for uh, public discourse at the moment, uh, and it rarely lends itself uh, to uh, intelligent uh, or long-term uh, analysis. And so my instinct, uh, for what it's worth, uh, was to say, well, I, I, I recognize that this is important, so I will do this as a report to government. Um, I, I know a thing or two about it, and I'm very happy to give a year of my life to doing it. So I will do the Carter report on uh, the digital economy. And the Prime Minister said, well, you could do that, but there's a shelf over here that's got a lot of other reports to government, many of which uh, have been erudite and incisive, but some of which have gone nowhere. If you come inside the machine, you can make a much more material difference uh, to uh, the sector that you uh, uh, claim to care about, Um, and hence the reason for um, choosing to become uh, or accept the invitation to become uh, a minister. What did, what did we seek to do? Well, we sought to do something that's relatively straightforward, which is to write a piece of industrial policy. And industrial policy is an interesting soundbite because it's a piece of language that, if you're of my generation, which is broadly the kind of post-market liberalization, Thatcher, professional generation, um, industrial policy is something that we in this country don't tend to do. Um, if one was to perhaps trivialize or summarize our approach to industrial capabilities beyond two or three key categories, our approach over the last 20 or 25 years has largely been liberalize, um, let the market at it, and provide a broadly ex-post competition framework uh, to provide the necessary protections where that's needed. And many of us have benefited uh, enormously from that. Uh, My own view, and this I have to tell you is a view 
uh, forged uh, in part from being an operator, in part from being a regulator, and in part now from being a politician, is that I, I think if you take a 50-year view of the world, that is not a tenable position uh, in a highly intensively competitive global economy. Uh, not because any one of those players can provide any or all of the answers, but because, as in any team-based situation, you need a collective effort. And you need a collective effort that is coordinated and coherent. You need to bring uh, the effective power of government, uh, and I'm enough of a progressive to believe in the benign power of government, if it is well-informed, well-applied, and based on coherent analysis rather than knee-jerk political prejudice. And that is what the Digital Britain report uh, and the white paper seeks to be. Um, It seeks to lay out a reasonably coherent view of an important sector. It seeks to answer the the questions of uh, provision, supply, demand, participation, education, legal framework, the role of government as a procurer and as a setter of standards, and tries to address some subject-specific issues which are peculiar to the UK market. Um, Going forward, where will it go? Well, interestingly... Uh, There are, I think, 82 specific recommendations in the final report. Uh, From my private conversations with the opposition parties, there are probably 79 of them that there is agreement on. And there are two or three that there are not. Um, The two or three that are not tend to be the ones that the newspapers understand um, and therefore report. Um, And uh, there will be a bit of a political debate about, about those. My own view, actually, is that the only one where I think there will be a clear public um, political disagreement, i.e. we would not do that, will be around the top slicing so-called of the license fee. Um, And I would say the reason why the opposition party will take that view is partly because they know we will make the decision before they have got even the slightest chance of being anywhere near government. And therefore, it's an easy opposition place to be. And that is what you do when you're in opposition. Uh, When you're in government, you do very different things. Um, beyond that, I think the substance of the report will, uh, will happen. Um, the, the majority of it that does not require primary legislation is by and large already underway. The, the bit that does will be dealt with in primary legislation in the Digital Economy Bill, which we, uh, and I in particular, are in the process of finishing off before I complete my tour of ministerial duty. What we're beginning to see around the world Um, is an increasing recognition that this is a sector where other countries equally wish to have global competitiveness. And industrial policy and strategic planning is something that uh, uh, there are many countries in the world uh, do on Monday morning at 9 o'clock. If you go to China, if you go to Singapore, if you go to Korea, if you go to Japan, if you go to Malaysia, if you go to any of these countries, um, or even the more uh, traditional Western-style democracies that are much more comfortable with what I would call nation-building activities. You go to Australia, you go to Canada, you go to, you go to North America. Uh, even go across the channel to France or to Germany. These are large-scale, industrial, liberal market economies that are willing to harness the power of government policy, public policy, and public procurement investment to achieve a competitive advantage for the country that they're in. That does not mean protectionism. It means recognizing that there are key attributes of a developed economy that you have to take a long-term view of. And in my view, communications, infrastructure, content, legal framework, and capabilities are self-evidently examples of those if you are going to have a knowledge and service-based economy. I remind people that we did not end up as one of, if not the leading financial service sector of the world because we wished to be that. We ended up as the leading financial services sector of the world because we made conscious decisions as a country to liberalize the markets, to create a tripartite regulatory structure that incentivized the development of new markets. We provided liquidity structures, trading mechanisms. We provided tax breaks, foreign investment incentives. And all of those things resulted, combined with our genius and ability, in an education structure which prioritize the development of skills, a recruitment market that drove people into the banks uh, and into the city, which produced a highly revenue-profitable sector for the UK exchequer and the UK economy. Now, it's, it's easy meat uh, these days for people to poo-poo the financial services sector. I, for one, don't. I want us to have a dominant financial services sector. It's a powerhouse of revenue generation as well as attracting enormous investment and skills 
into the UK market. But no one wants to be sitting on a one-trick pony. And we need in this country to have depth of capability in a multiplicity of areas. For reasons partly of intervention and partly of, uh, of coherence, we have strength in pharmaceuticals, largely because of the scale of investment in the health service. We equally have scale of capability in defense, again, because we are, as a country, one of the European countries that invests a disproportionate amount of our GDP in defense expenditure. This is a sector where we should take a very clear view that we wish to have a similar level of competence and scale. That is what we try to lay out in the white paper. In my view, it doesn't answer all of the questions. Indeed, it doesn't ask some of the questions. But it is the first time we have ever in this country tried to look across government and put in one place what are the key issues and how should we uh, best uh, address them. And um, it has been the most uh, enjoyable uh, and rewarding experience because when you do get uh, the opportunity to make uh, 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 substantial and significant change, it's something you do very lightly. Um, I took uh, uh, three uh, hours off last Thursday to clear a backlog of correspondence in my House of Lords, physical correspondence in my House of Lords mailbox, um, because uh, it had been a busy old time for the last couple of months. And I had about 300 handwritten letters from people. When people take their time to write you a handwritten letter in this day and age, uh, you uh, take the time to reply to it, in my view. And of those 300, about 100 and so of them, 120, were people writing to say, how can you um, uh, consider putting uh, a, uh, a 50 pence levy, a six pound uh, tax on fixed lines? This is a scandal. It should be paid for by somebody else, or we shouldn't do it, or we don't need it. Interestingly, about 30 or 40 letters were saying, thank God someone is doing something to improve our infrastructure. Now, as anyone will know who's ever been in the campaigning game, people don't spontaneously write to politicians to say, that's a jolly good thing you're doing. I have to tell you, that is a rare experience. And of the 120 or so writing to say this is a scandal, probably about 50% of them will be excluded by the exemption criteria that will apply. Um, my judgment is that when you take a view and you want something to happen, you can't merely wish for it. You have to decide what are the ways in which it's going to be delivered. But you have to be very conscious when you're intervening that the negative consequences are way outweighed by the medium to long-term benefits. And I sincerely hope they will be. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Stephen, you can stay for like 10 more minutes. Is no, that right? No, I can stay until quarter past six. Okay, great. Okay, well... Before we have a more generalised discussion, and I do have an idea about how to link these two rather disparate <laughs> talks together, uh, I think you very kindly said you take some specific questions, and I know there are a lot of people here that would particularly like to raise a point. Uh, first, I'd like to come to Jason Nisse, former uh, business editor of The Independent on Sunday, but for the benefit, I'm not going to introduce everyone, so say again who you are and address your question uh, or J your comment. Jason Nisse, now of Fishman Hedges. Um, in uh, the uh, bonfire of the Quangos, um, one of the few guys which were actually put on the bonfire was your former bailiwick of Ofcom. Um, what do you think about uh, the criticism of Ofcom and uh, how do you think it should be reformed? Um, I haven't, uh, to have to confess that I have not read the detail of uh, David Cameron's full speech. So I have only seen the, the relevant uh, edits, and I did see this transcript of the interviews. Um, I, I have to say, I, I'm, and this is, maybe I'm too much of a stranger in this land, I am, I am consistently disappointed by what passes for political discourse. Um, it, it's a sort of vaguely good headline, the bonfire of the Quangos, and, um, but it's sort of meaningless. Um, because, as every government knows, the reason why we have quasi-non-governmental organizations or we have independent agencies is because in certain areas we believe that we need either professional expertise or independence from government or a structure of delivery which the uh, departmental and political structures don't allow for. Um, the leader of the opposition rightly raises the point that any government worth its salt needs to keep a BDI on costs. Um, 
When I went in to uh, run uh, Ofcom, which I was asked to do in part by uh, the previous Prime Minister, I inherited, I think, vaguely, in round numbers, 2,000 sort of people, roughly, there or thereabouts. Or positions, actually, to be more accurate, uh, Jason, 2,000 positions. And I remember saying at the time, I said, well, look, okay, here's the deal. Um, um, I, want to be ha- I want to be able to have freedom to run this thing as a proper organisation um, within the appropriate bounds of public accountability. Um, and to do that, I need, some, I need some pricing freedom on how we pay people. Um, um, so he- here's a proposal. Um, I think we can run this on about 700 people, and we can probably do it on 20% less cost, and then I think we could commit to a 5% every year cost reduction. We can reverse everyone out of a defined benefit pension scheme, so remove a state liability um, to 2,000 people, and I can hire better people and will be better. Um, but I want the ability to be able to pay people at what I would judge to be an appropriate market rate for people who are not looking to make capital but who want to be rewarded for their smarts. Um, and that's what we did. Now, it's not perfect, but it was pretty good, I have to tell you, and it was pretty revolutionary. And um, so I think uh, the leader of the opposition's comments are somewhere between superficial and ill-informed on that question. Uh, I think at a minimum he's been badly advised, or at a maximum he just uh, hasn't um, read the brief. Um, And on the question of reform, I believe all institutional structures need constant reform. I I am a great believer in uh, the principle that William and I were brought up in, of all good organisations have to have a higher level of um, institutional dissatisfaction than their critics. It's no longer my place to comment on whether Ofcom has that, but his basic critical thesis was an incorrect one. I mean, talking of basic critical thesis as being incorrect, I mean, there was quite a rush to judgment about Digital Britain. Do you feel, in terms of the media, that they gave it due consideration? I mean, it's a pretty hefty report. Journalists didn't have that long to consider it before they commented on it. Well, the, 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 the kind of media reporting in the broader sense of the media reporting was if you did it on a kind of weighted average of co- column inches was actually broadly pretty favourable. If you did it on a weighted average of traditional newspapers, it was sort of neutral to critical. And I think, to be fair to the, uh, the journalists, you know, one of the problems we wrestle with is there's a debate over here, which is a very legitimate debate, called the primacy of parliament. And the primacy of Parliament demands that, particularly with a command white paper, that it is delivered to Parliament. And in that that instance, that demanded an oral statement to both houses at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, there are plenty of professional journalists here. When you land 265 pages of complex, dense policy work, and it is complex and dense. I I happen to think it's a pretty good read, but then I'm biased I wrote some of it. But even if it's a bad read, in fact, even worse if it's a bad read because it takes you longer to write it. And people would, were asked to crank out five or six hundred pages of, 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 of copy. And then you also have to look at the substance of what we recommended. We made some significant recommendations that major vested interests in the media world don't agree with. Um, well, guess what? People will criticise that. But that's fair. That's, that's, that's all fair in love and war. But there was a process point about how does the media machine process complexity at speed. And I... We, we sacrificed the, the gain there, but we did it on the altar of parliamentary primacy. If we'd done it the other way around and handled the media, we'd have been killed. So, Question over here. Wait for the microphone. Say who you are. To Ben. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, ben Wolf, uh, founder and director general of a company called Music Technology Limited and Family of Rock. Um, today... Out of 2,000 companies, we finished in the top one um, of awarded from the Technology Strategy Board accessing and commercialising content in a digitally networked world. And whilst I thank the government for that, when I hear um, the Prime Minister say that broadband internet is as vital as a water supply, me and my lot just despair because it isn't. It isn't. Electricity may be a fad, you know. Electricity, that's what they think at Krug. That's why they keep the skills, because it might be a passing fad, electricity. Now, if it takes a year to write anything in technology, that's laughable. And I've read the Digital Britain report. Uh, It was, thank you for doing it. But we don't recognise that as anything other than a backward look 
at what has happened, nothing to do with what is happening or what is going to happen. You know, when government gets involved in legislation around technology, we get things like the Y2K hoax, okay, the millennium bomb which brought down a dot-com business. Okay? To me, I despair, I hope that there are no recommendations taken up because it's not for government to legislate in the area of technology. Right, so Ben, it's contentious to say the least. Someone there, are you going to comment on that or put another question? I'm going to give Stephen a bit of a breather before he has to respond to that. Anybody, you want to say one more point? With respect, I should say. No, 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 go on. It's all right, we'll just take a couple of points from the floor. Who who are you? On the the Ofcom point. Uh, And you are? Um, My name's Jeremy Mayhew. Um, Occasionally I do some consulting in the media and broadcasting space. Um, I'm also labouring under this, the disadvantage of not having read David's full speech. But it seemed to me that the most interesting part, at least from the reports of what he said, and I ask you this because you are not uniquely particularly well-placed to comment on this issue about the, 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 the point at which government and Whitehall should end and the quango should begin, I agree. was that the boundary line between those things that, in a sense, should be delegated to technocrats. I don't use that in a dismissive sense. And those things that should remain within the political and democratic sphere had shifted somewhat in the wrong direction. And the things that should inherently and necessarily be political decisions were being taken within the quangos. And I wonder whether you, without debating the issue about the efficiency of quangos as a class seems to me, relatively speaking, an uninteresting question. I thought that he did address a very interesting question about whether or not certain things should come back into Whitehall, because that's where the democratic domain belongs. Thank you. So, yeah. a response on well, any I, or all of those two points? Um, I, I think you're, 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 you're absolutely right, uh, Jeremy. I, I think, uh, and as, that's why I caveat, I haven't read the detail of his speech, so uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to make um, the same mistake, uh, hopefully. But, you know, had the speech not been about the bonfire of the Quengos, which is a kind of, you know, cheap headline, um, um, or expensive headline, depending on your point of view, um, had it been uh, a much more... Had it been the point you were making, I, I think there's real validity there. I think there is a very, very interesting public concern question, which slightly goes to the previous gentleman's point, which I would contend, which is... If we have elected governments, what do we want elected governments to do? Um, you know, discuss. Now, one of the things we, at a minimum, want elected governments to do is to make the allocative choices on public resources. I mean, at a minimum, that's one of the things we want to do. I mean, sure, we want them to do defence and security and all the basic hygiene factors, but one of the things we want governments to do is to make the allocative choices on public resources. To make those decisions effectively, you have to have knowledge, experience, Um, independent objective analysis and you also have to have political judgment because we live in a political democracy I think there is a very very legitimate question for us to ask ourselves about whether we have denuded our uh, Whitehall capabilities in some key areas and I think that is definitely true in this sector one of the consequences of creating a powerful regulator indeed this argument has been run out in financial services around the tripartite relationship between the FSA, the Bank of England, and the Treasury, about where is the division of responsibility and where do you have the necessary level of capability. But they're not either ors. The question isn't, should we have powerful, effective, well-informed government and diminished regulators? It's, how do we get the best of both? Because from the best of both, that's where you end up with the the right answers. Because there are responsibilities, I think, for example, in an elective democracy... I do not want governments engaged in editorial policy on news media. I, I don't think we should want that. And that has rightly been an arm's length responsibility from government on regulators. To the previous gentleman's uh, uh, question, I'm not really quite sure I, whether I understand the question. Um, but So I, I don't want to give you a sort of wrong answer. If yours is a kind of council of despair, which is basically government should bog off and leave it all to the market, I don't buy it. And I could give you 500 examples of why that wouldn't work. What was the question? The question is, it's very, difficult. it's very difficult to spend a year on anything in technology and then report because it can only be 
retrospective. So is the question, was it out of date the minute it was published? Absolutely. Okay, In, okay so let, what's your answer to that? Um, well, my answer to that is you're definitely, you're self-evidently right that in the technology market, more than any other markets, it moves at a pace and a speed which is not, for example, equally true in, I don't know, the automotive market to shake another live market. It does move much faster. This will, not, this will come as cold comfort to you, I can determine from the tone of your question. But I have to tell you, by government standards, this report went at l- warp speed. Um, and uh, and uh, whilst there are parts of it that were historical, there are significant parts of it that are, I think, quite forward-looking uh, on some quite key questions. On your university, universality point, I don't know which particular speech of the Prime Minister's you were referring to, but I, I think I can, I can say the point the Prime Minister was making was that in order for us to make a decision that broadband is a universal service, you have to win the argument that it equates with other universally provided services, of which electricity is an example. Now, you may contend it, you may contend it, but I have to tell you, one of the things that I have done in the last nine months is spent quite a lot of time in those parts of the country, the sort of 1.25 million households who don't have broadband service, and they would profoundly disagree with you. It was about water, he said. Okay, but just, we've got a few minutes before Stephen has to go off, and I'm going to make my first attempt at a generalised point. You are free to raise other specific points, but here's my attempt at a linking point. It seems to me that both of you are talking in your own way about future casting and future proofing systems in a world that is very immediate. It's about today's headlines, it's about today's perceptions, it's about a disparity between the reality you're projecting and seeing, and the kind of out-there media reality. You've talked, William, about how 66% of people say that, in fact, they are well-off or better off, but that you think that figure is 90%. Um, You talk about the hysteria of public discourse. So is there a problem, whether you're coming at it from an advertising perspective, whether you're coming at it from a government perspective, that people are being denied something in the future because of the short-termism of now? Uh, I, mean, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm too much of an optimist by nature. I think two things on that. One, you can't ignore where we are in the kind of political cycle, which is you know, self-evidently relevant. You know, we're in year, whatever we are, year 12. A general election is having interview. That clearly is a prism through which um, people see things, and that, that is different even than you know, where they are in the United States of America, however swiftly the political debate is moving on. But secondly, I think what it demands is that more people participate. I think here's a bad outcome. A bad outcome is that what people do is they use the power of technology or individual communities or areas of specialist interest and they apply their energies and efforts to that and they leave the sort of public debate to somebody else. Because whether this gentleman likes it or not, these public decisions are being made and, and therefore I think it demands a higher degree of participation in order that you get the genius of all the uh, uh, of all the talents and all the uh, and all the energies, rather than than a sort of resignation. Oh, well, I'll leave it to the professional political class because the professional political class alone will have a certain set of skills, but they'll be missing others. William, I think. Well, I think what we certainly see in terms of consumer attitudes is a greater volatility than there has been certainly in my lifetime. We see a, a, a more rapid shift of view. As a, partly as a result of, of what the media are creating and partly because that is, the, you know, that is the society in which we currently live. But, you know, whether it's attitudes towards Susan Boyle or political allegiance, you see, a, you see sudden and very significant shifts in attitude and, and in approach. But you and do, but at is, the same time you also see, don't you, profound deepenings of people's sense of identity and association. I mean, you know, go to where I'm from, Scotland, you know, genealogical tourism... Is yep. a, you know, is a, is a, ancestral tourism is a huge industry because people are trying to find deep connections, places they're from, family bonds, um, you know, school friends. So you, you're absolutely right. You have got this sort of, today Susan Boyle's in, <coughs> tomorrow she's history. But at the same time, you've also got people reaching for a sense of purpose and, 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 and perspective over a longer period of time. Yep, I think that's true. I mean, is it relevant in this context, the remarks by the chairman of HSBC, Stephen Green, about values that you've got, you know, you t- you, you've made a very elegant peon to the financial services I- industry, but actually the last 
generation, if you like, has been one that was relatively value-free, and now we're in a very self-conscious era where morality is playing. So is that changing the landscape? Is it more, is it more profound than just the political cycle? Is it more well, profound? I don't know, because I think it's interesting that in terms of the, 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 the major political parties, it seems to me that they, they currently lack any real depth of values. And it's very, there's a great piece in the FT today, you know, well, what is David Cameron for? You know, what, what, what are conservative values today? What are core Labour Party values today? I think it's much harder to tell Where's that than moral it was compass? 20 years ago. Yeah. What do we think? Okay, lots and lots of hands. What, down here. Hello, I'm Sue Primer. I'm Assistant Chief Exec of the London Borough of Hackney, where we're hosting the media for 2012. But I actually want to ask a slightly different question. Um, the media is a means rather than an ends, and your sort of slight disappointment at the level of, of discourse in the country... What is it that UK PLC does want to be known for, over and above being digitally inclusive or digitally enabled? If it's not the financial services industry, what discourse are we not having about what we want to be known for? Stephen, it's your five to ten years' time question, isn't it? <laughs> it is rather. Um, well, my, my, my point was kind of cast in the area of industrial sectors, and I... I, I you know, certainly I think the technology, media and telecoms sector is one. Um, uh, I, I would say life sciences is another. Um, I would say um, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, health is another. I would say um, carbon technologies, low carbon technologies is another. Um, professional services industries is another. I mean, you could, you could, you could, you could go on. Um, and uh, all we're really trying to suggest here is where there are clearly decisions that have to be made in the public space rather than in the private space. Let's try and get an alignment, whether it's decisions about curriculum design or tax incentives or, or indeed investments in the tech through, you know, funded by the Technology Strategy Board in, in funding startups in, in, key, in key sectors. Um, and let's try and go through that process reasonably uh, method methodically. Um, that, that's, I, I think, how I, how I would approach it. Quick point from Narina Hertz, and then I think, Stephen, you, we have to release yeah. you from the panel. Thanks. Um, I think you were both talking really about narratives and about the importance of narratives and about how narratives can affect economic futures and also, um, and you were also talking about industrial policy, trying to link those up in a global... Oh, sorry, I'm Narina Hertz, Professor of globalization and sustainability at um, Erasmus and Cambridge University. Um, linking those up, um, I mean, I'm absolutely all for a much better industrial policy here in, here in the UK. I think we absolutely need it. At the same time, I travel all over Europe and I see other governments trying to do exactly the same thing. And, you know, because we're living in an era in which um, labor is moving... Um, to less developed countries. We have a lot of competition here in Europe around exactly the same things, low carbon, um, service industries, etc. Um, how does UK develop a distinctive narrative in this context? That's, I think, a big challenge, and I'd like both of your views on that. Well, I was going to say, there's your ad campaign, William. You can solve that <laughs> for us, please, in less than five minutes. Stephen, do you want to respond quickly and then... Well, we have enormous competitive advantages um, against almost any other country in the world, which, um, as is often the case when you're dealing with competitive advantages, you tend to take them for granted because they're ours. Uh, the first is the language that you and I are having this conversation in. Uh, the second is that it's ten past six in Greenwich Mean Time, uh, because Greenwich Mean Time is a time zone that the rest of the world both trades off, um, certainly in the financial markets, and also organise itself. Uh, the third is the reputation we have for the rule of law um, and the protection and preserve that we give to intellectual property uh, and the security of, uh, of ownership. Um, the fourth, which is potentially ironic given the conversation we're having, is that we are, and I can tell you having been both a, a regulator and a, and a, and a, and a faux politician, um, we, we have a reputation around the world for being outstanding at public administration and having a broadly honest political system. Um, and those are not irrelevant 
base starting points. I mean, if you and I were playing a kind of you know, business startup game, you said, okay, here are some basic things. Where would you choose to start? All of those things would weight you in considering the UK as a place to come from. Then what you're then saying on top of that is, well, how do we, how do we take advantage either of our natural physical location or our natural resources or what our education system produces or where we have physical benefits. One of the reasons why ICT and technologies and networks are handy is because there's 60-odd million of us living in a tiny place. Network densities in this country are a hell of a lot more economically attractive than they are in North America or in Australia, where you're, you've got people extending over large periods of, large periods of uh, large, uh, distances, so the economics are less attractive. So there are huge natural advantages for us, which give us a flying head start uh, and really what you seek to do is to layer, layer on top of those. Right, we're going to have a tiny pause because I'm conscious you said you'd have to stay until 6.15 and 6.15 it is. So I would like to thank Stephen Carter very much. Luckily, your office is next door, but even so, you were at a meeting. Yeah. Thank you for being our window monitor. Pleasure. And uh, while Stephen is getting his coat and getting ready, I'm going to ask William the question... Uh, bye. Thank you very much. William, of course, spoke at the first Port Merion, and to some degree I would say that this entire discussion is predicated against that background of these big questions where business and culture and politics and policy knit together. So I would like you to answer Narina's question about UK PLC in that context, which is how individual in a mass age is Britain? I think it's a great, I mean, I think it is a great question, and I don't think it can have a glib answer. And I think attempts to give a kind of glib answer to, you know, what do we stand for, end up with a cool Britannia kind of response, which is absolutely what you don't want. And you absolutely don't want an advertising campaign, I'm afraid, Julia, tempting though it would be. Uh, I think what we desperately do need is, and I'll use the word again, is some form of a narrative, some form of of a story that enables us to present what we stand for, what we believe in, and what, and what Britain and Britons are in the 21st century. And I'm certainly not in a position to say what I think that should be, but I think the reason why you get the, the volatility in opinion that we talk about, uh, the reason why I think consumers are so confused at the moment is because there is no consistent narrative. There is no consistent story about where we are, what we believe in, and where we are in the world. And I do think that is a, is a real problem. What about political leadership? I mean, is America more coherent because they have a leader a, around whom the country certainly did unite six it, months it, ago? It feels like it at the moment. It absolutely feels like it at the moment. But as Stephen rightly said, you know, we are at the... I believe we are at the end of a political cycle. You know, any government after 12 years is is likely to have a, a a negative aura around it. Any U.S. president after six months, with the possible exception of George W. Bush, is likely to still have some kind of a halo around him, and Obama certainly has that. So I think they, I mean, you know, I think we are in such a different place in the political cycle to, to, the, to the states at the moment. It's difficult to say. Who wants to make a comment and an observation on that? I mean, the minister did not specifically say he thought we were coming to the end of this government, but he did say we oh, were at the end of did. 12 years. <laughs> Who would like to make a comment or an observation or segue back into something that's been said? Everybody knows I pick on people if no one raises their hand. Okay, she Suzanne does. Moore, I'm picking on you. You're a journalist for the Mail on Sunday. Lots has been said here in a kind of eye-rolling, we-all-know-it-to-be-so way about the media. What do you believe the media's role in all of this is, in the narrative? No well, pressure. <laughs> it's huge pressure, but, I mean, clearly uh, what William said, that you know, the, the um, people not feeling the recession is happening, the MPs' expenses... Now, swine flu. I mean, yes, we are finding new narratives, but the question that Narina asked about what's our actual narrative of... Uh, I think when it comes from, I would say, from top down, from Gordon Brown saying, what does it mean to be British? It's me, absolutely meaningless. I think, you know, this is a question for our, our young people, not for us. Yep. And I think they're actually already have de deciding it. You know, I think these things are being decided not, not by any digital democracy. I don't like that, that phrase at all. I don't believe it for a start. 
Um, I mean, we had this conversation at Port Marion. That's a meaningless phrase to me. That just means people in their bedrooms with their laptops. That is not democracy. And I don't want anyone telling me that it is. So um, <laughs> I would like to... I would, um, I would go back to Noreen's point. We do need a narrative, but I don't think we're the people here that are going to make that narrative. I think it's our kids. I think if you go anywhere at the moment um, with, uh, and you ask a 16-year-old about Britishness, they will not talk to you in a way that, um, you know, about nationalism, but they're actually very comfortable about being British. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it. Can I ask Stryker Maguire, American journalist, observer of our <coughs> culture, two questions. One is, do you agree with that observation? And secondly, is Suzanne not being ageist? What's wrong with people of, in their late 20s, early 30s, upwards in this room, forming the narrative as someone approaching her 45th birthday gingerly? I guess I would make another point, frankly. I mean, to... When we talk about the media, uh, it's like talking about Europe or Asia. Uh, I mean, there are many, many things within, within the media. And I think, if nothing else, William has presented us with a perfect opportunity here, because if the media are making up the fact that we're in a great recession, uh, and the media are experiencing advertising declines of 25 to 40% year on year, then all we have to do is get together Yep. With you and me, and then that's, that's the end of the crisis, and we'll all live happily ever after. I did not say it was being made up, to be fair, but I take it. Exaggerated. Yep. Yeah, yep. I guess I would just, I, just anecdotally, I would just point out one thing. I, I used to work in a, in a building in Soho uh, on Poland Street, six floors, uh, and it had, two years ago, it had 250 people in the building, and I went there er- earlier this week, and there are 68 and I think that that's, it's not because of swine flu or deep cleaning. It's, I mean, I think there is something, there is something going on. I mean, you're, abs- the, you're absolutely right that especially some segments of the media do, uh, do ride a story uh, for all it's worth and often for, for too long. But that there, I think that the, the public is getting quite good at, at reading between the lines, actually, and, and sort of sorting it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, one more question, Stefan Stern, of the Financial Times, who was at Port Marion and you were our partner in this. Is there a danger that governments are trying to make policy, industrial policy or otherwise, as sexy as an advertising campaign? Is there not a point at which you have to say, let it be dull as ditch and dry as dust? What's your view about the idea that everybody is chasing a sort of national enthusiasm that may or may not be achievable? Well, I I think it's rather difficult for the government at the moment to get a hearing uh, from anybody, really, because so many faces are fixed, they're set in a sneer, and the ears are are closed. Um, So in a way, it was rather touching, almost, to hear a minister at the end of nine months and at the end of quite a serious critical press coverage still being quite optimistic about the purpose of government and the role of the state and the job of a minister and the business of reports. So I, I was quite struck by that. Uh, and communication, after all, Julie, I don't have to tell you, is, if you like, it, it's a result, not an intention. So you're duty-bound to try and find interesting, attractive ways of describing things. And again, that's a challenge to talk about nation, nationhood, or Britain. Uh, Tony Blair wanted us to be a young country again, didn't he? But it's, that's quite difficult uh, in Britain. Uh, although the, the successful Olympic bid did something to reintroduce that concept of new Britain, young Britain, and explicitly multicultural Britain. So I'm, I'm struck by the minister's enthusiasm in spite of this difficult job. I'm also struck by a, a curious thing in William's comments, and given that he is in the perception business, uh, that of course at a time, as Stryker just said, when friends, colleagues, relatives are losing jobs, um, it's, it's no mystery at all, is it, that at a time like this people decide not to buy the new car, not to go on the extravagant holiday, not to build the extension on the house. It is a perception business. I remember when Ian Lang got into trouble 15 years ago when he was at DTI, 
saying that job insecurity was all in the mind, and the then Labour opposition had a lot of fun with that. But of course, yep. in a sense, he was speaking a, yeah. a truth. Where else do you have insecurity? Uh, and this is a perception sure. problem. And con consumer spending is all about confidence. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Well, on that enigmatic note, we're going to end this particular bit of the discussion. We're going to continue informally in this lovely space provided by Edelman. I have good news and bad news as regards we are names, not numbers. The good news is we're doing it again. The bad news is we've almost completely sold out already. And you have to ask very quickly and very nicely if you would like indeed to be considered. We are trying to make more places available, but it really only takes about 80 people. Uh, we do have confirmed participation from the likes of Alan de Botton and Simon Jenkins and by technology, if not in person, because she's going to be in India on the dates, Narina Hertz. We do again have partnerships with the Financial Times, with Cass, with Edelman, with Jaguar Land Rover. But I hope whether or not you did attend Port Mary and whether or not you attend the Names Not Numbers next year, that you will take the time to have a look at these contributions. Uh, and I would like to thank William and indeed the empty chair that was Stephen Carter <laughs> and you. So we'll send you the links to the podcasts and the broadcasts and uh, enjoy Edelman's hospitality a little while longer. So from Editorial Intelligence and Partners, thank you.